everyone. Welcome back to another issue of Comic Stands, where we look at a comic book, dissect it, and talk about whether or not it is accessible to everyone from new readers to old. My name is Joe, pronouns are he, they, and today we are going to be talking about the comic book Chicken Devil Number 1, published by Aftershock Comics, written by Brian Buccellato, drawn by Hayden Sherman, lettered by Hassan Otsman Elhau, and with a main cover by Hayden Sherman and an incentive cover by David Lopez, and released on October 6, 2021, so about a month ago at the time of this recording. Now, I actually alluded to doing this comic earlier in the podcast. I want to say I even mentioned it in the trailer episode, but I did want to take the time to look at it because, first of all, it's more of an indie comic. Of course, it's not published by one of the big two. It's published by Aftershock Comics, but it also just had a cover that really drew me in, that cover I talked about earlier, actually by the interior artist Hayden Sherman, which if you either have the comic or have seen the comic because of this review, you'll know that it's very striking. It's got the person in a chicken suit holding a gun right at the reader, nice overlap with the person's hands and the title. It's a very dynamic cover, not only with the subject matter, but with the colors as well. So really drew me in to wanting to buy it. As always, I'll talk about the comic book first and foremost in terms of how accessible it is and more of an overview, kind of a spoiler-free portion. And then after that, we'll go into a breakdown of the comic itself. We're actually going to have a new approach to that section this time. Before, it was more stream of conscious. Now it's going to be more section by section. And we're going to talk about the comic from cover to cover. I'll tell you when that portion comes out. If you listen to the preview and you decide to go buy it, you can pause it there. Or you could just keep on listening and listen to me review it from cover to cover. So first of all, I think that the comic book does work well as an introduction to comics slash a good introduction comic for someone who might not know anything about the story. I think it gets its premise across pretty well. I think it does have a couple of moments where momentum stammers a little bit, but it flows reasonably and it does have a good cliffhanger at the end. The comic book itself isn't aware in some senses of how similar it is to other stories and some archetypes slash tropes, but I think it has a good sense of humor with it, so it never really feels like it's going over ground that's too well-worn, and when it does, it kind of does a little wink and a nod towards it. The comic book is a little bit over the top with its profanities, even more so than the violence, which you would kind of think that the violence would be front and center. But the thing that really stood out to me more was the profanities, which isn't too big of an issue with me. I did notice it, but it wasn't really a deal breaker for me. But if you're sensitive to such things, this might not be the comic for you. Just something to know right away. And not even if you're offended by it, but more if you're just not into that within your writing. That might be something that can deter you from this comic book. That being said, the comic book itself is grittier. It is more pulp, in a sense. Which is down to the art, the writing style, the letters even, which we'll get to when we get to our fuller review. So if that's your vibe, that's totally cool. You might be really into this. If you like something a little bit more fantastical, this might not be your dig. So I gave you a brief overview of a little bit of that grittiness and how it bleeds through into the comic itself and all the various forms. The letters... Uh, in a lot of the big two companies, you'll see letters be done in in a pretty overall clean way. 
but here you almost get a sense of them being a little bit more frantic, a little bit more towards hand lettering, uh, or at least having a little bit more personality in the letters, especially in captions. So there's a few points throughout the comic where you have something being captioned, be it a location, be it a specific thing that the person wants to point out in the panel, and those captions in particular look especially hand-drawn, which is cool. It gives you a nice personal touch. In my opinion, those captions specifically get a little bit hard to read sometimes. A couple times it cut me out of the flow when I had to look and see if one thing was one letter or another. I get that they're going for the more homemade feel in a sense, but I feel like they could clean it up just a little bit. But it wasn't too much for me that it completely ruined the comic. Uh, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but I actually did very much like this comic. Little nitpicks here and there. I want to be critical when I see something to be critical of, and I will give praise when I see praise too. But the dialogue is actually a little bit more streamlined while still maintaining a more homey feel, so that's good. The only times it really gets to be something that might approach to being in the way is with those captions that I talked about. The art itself is a little bit sketchier in places. It is still finished, of course. It is just a little bit grittier than some people might be used to if they've mainly just seen mainstream comics. It's a little bit less defined for background characters, which is really common, actually. But you really do notice it specifically in these comics. However, the foreground or the focus points in the panels do get enough detail and are actually drawn really well in some points. When I get to the longer form breakdown of the comic, I'll call out a couple specific panels that I actually really, really liked. That being said, there were also a couple panels where some of the angles and a little bit of the framing within the panels themselves did leave me feeling a little bit disjointed, a little bit disoriented but there were an equal amount, if not more, panels where I thought that it really helped the eye flow through the page pretty well. So, overall, that's a pretty good check mark for me as far as the art. Lastly, and you do get this sometimes in some of the bigger comics, but at the very end of the comic book, you get a nice little bit of world building. The last four pages of the comic, not including the ads, are a two-page story on how the chicken restaurant that's mentioned in the comic book is formed following the main character from his entire journey as a chef to opening up these restaurants and also a two-page spread on the menu for the restaurant which I thought was really fun. I thought that was pretty cool. I do wish that some of the world building that was done in that last bit of story, that two-page story, was in the comic book itself. But the more I sat with it and thought about it, the events of the comic are contrasted nicely by later on knowing the main character's story and what he's gone through slash how he came up through the restaurant business. So in the end, I kind of came around on where its placement was, and its inclusion in general was really fun. Overall, I would say if you're looking for a grittier comic book filled with action, a little bit of absurdity, which I guess you could expect with a name like Chicken Devil and a cover like that, uh, and if you don't mind a lot of profanities within your reading experience, Chicken Devil could be the comic for you. At the time of this recording, the second issue actually comes out this week. So if you're listening to this 
when it comes out, you should be able to find a copy of number two in your local comic book store. Now, here's a little pause, and when we come back, we will get into the full long-form review of this comic. This issue of Comic Stands is brought to you by Mitch's Hot Chicken. Are you tired of bland, dry chicken? Are you tired of having to pay through the roof in money as well as time for quality of food? What if I told you there was a place you can get a delicious meal with a hometown feel at a luxury price? Well, I'm talking about Mitch's Hot Chicken. With six signature dishes and an array of sides, your taste buds will think that they've died and gone to heaven. Or hell, depending on your heat level. Oh, did I not mention? There are also six levels of heat to choose from. All the way from angel style to the devil made me do it. I personally recommend the Mitch. Heat level is up to you. I go for angel, but that's just me. So come on down to one of Mitch's Hot Chicken's four locations. That's Mitch's Hot Chicken. You'll be rushing back for more. All right, welcome back, everyone. So now let's go ahead and sink our teeth into Chicken Devil number one. Like I mentioned before, uh, this is going to be a cover-to-cover -cover review. So if you have your comic book on you, feel free to flip along with me. I won't call out page numbers or anything, but... We're going to be talking about the story from beginning to end. I'm going to talk about what happens. So if you don't have the comic book and you just kind of want to listen along, you could do that too. So the comic book starts off by establishing our main character and their family, Mitchell Moss, who's living in Eagle Rock, California. Right out of the gate, we get our first of around 26 F-words. Keeping it family friendly around here. So I just say F-words, F-bombs, etc. I won't really bring up the other curses or bring it up much more past this point. Uh, the only times I'm actually going to bring it up past this point are to praise its use of them, believe it or not. But I did want to talk about it because I mentioned it earlier and just to really put a number to what I was talking about. Kind of wild. I went through before recording this and counted them as best I could. And 26 is kind of wild for the comic book length. But anyway... After the introduction to Mitchell, we're introduced to his family, Christian, his son, his daughter, Hannah, and his wife, Denise. They're all asking for various things from Mitchell, and he's making his coffee, thinking to himself, kind of spacing out a little bit, and then he promptly shoots down all of their requests, one by one, for various reasons. I do want to point out that this isn't really done in an overly harsh way, but more of in a, I'm tired and just kind of familiar with you, so I'm, I'm comfortable it's kind of being more casual. So that's interesting. It wrinkles in equal parts familiarity and dysfunction. Nothing too over-the-top negative. You could tell that it's a loving family. I think it's handled and drawn well. It leads your eye throughout the middle of the page showing Mitchell making his coffee and getting all of that together while being flanked on either side by the family asking things, and then reacting to Mitch's responses. Right after this, as Mitch is finishing up talking to the family, he gets a phone call, and we find out that that is his business partner, Antonio, calling him away to the business, saying that there is an urgent emergency. We later find out that it's at their fast food company, Mitch's Hot Chicken, where there was a fire that destroyed a portion of their warehouse. The two complain about Mitch's proprietary pressure fryers, one of the things that gets a little caption there, and we see that the relationship between Mitch and Antonio is strained at best. But this doesn't last too long, because as they're talking about recouping finances, and Antonio starts talking about fleeing, 
the Russian mob comes in. Yeah, this is a turn for the slightly bizarre, but we soon find out that they were smuggling drugs inside of the chicken buckets. The comic is also very aware that this is kind of a trope from Breaking Bad, and it even points it out. It calls it out. It lampshades it. That's kind of fun. I'm going to pause here for a moment to talk about the mob and how they were introduced, and not necessarily in story, but artistically. The shot kind of confused me. You start off with Antonio talking about fleeing, which gives you the idea that he's a little bit more antsy. But the way that we all of a sudden see this group of men coming in and then we see the car outside on the next page confused me a little bit. I wasn't 100% sure who these people coming in were. I think if you had the car pulling up and then the people coming in, it would have worked a little bit better story-wise and a little bit better progression-wise. It's also a little bit weird to have the Russian mob in here, but you know what? It works overall, so... After that, the mob rough the two of them up a little bit, citing the suspicious nature of the fire being only large enough to burn down their shipment and not the entire warehouse, and ultimately they leave them with an ultimatum. Get them two million dollars, or they will kill everyone they love, so their families are on the line. We're also shown them addressing Antonio directly, not really caring about Mitch, which plants the seeds that Antonio is a lot shadier than we would have originally thought, and we kind of already thought he was shady to begin with, but still. So it's an interesting bit. Mitch really doesn't know what's going on. He's kind of joking a little bit. We kind of get that as a personality trait. We go right from there to Mitch driving down the freeway with his family, desperately trying to get to the ferry that Antonio was talking about from before. Mitch is pitching it as a technology-free vacation, pointing out specifically that they won't have their cell phones and can be unplugged just enjoying family time for a while. Knowing what we know, we of course know that Mitch is doing this so he can't be tracked or followed by the mob, but he's trying his hardest to pitch it as just a natural, we were going to go on vacation anyway, let's make this a family time type deal. Meanwhile, however, in the passenger seat, his wife is rightfully suspicious about this very last minute plans. The thing that Denise was asking about earlier was setting up a plan, setting up a vacation, so... Mitch having pushed it off earlier and now all of a sudden being super gung-ho does raise some flags. However, she does hesitantly go along with them. The children mainly act as annoyances, though we do get a little bit of their character overall, and are also introduced to the origin behind the chicken devil as a mascot, that being a local creature to South Jersey, for whatever reason. I'm not sure if this was a joke, like the Jersey Devil, or if it will actually become a recurring plot point, but we'll see. I would say this page is mainly here to show Mitch's growing anxiety and apprehensiveness with getting far, far away from the threat that he knows is looming. They arrive at the pier, and Mitch tells his family to board the ferry, and that he will meet them on board after making a phone call. We get a bit more skepticism from his wife, who then also asks if Mitch's mom has escaped, which we'll touch on later on, but for right now it's just kind of a thread that's left hanging. But soon after that, she listens to Mitch, who's telling everyone to go onto the ferry because he needs to make a phone call, and she makes her way towards the boat. This panel is actually one of my favorites within the comic book itself. The few panels in the top left with their dialogue leading into Denise walking, kind of annoyed look on her face towards the boat. It's all framed very well in a nice fluid motion. Mitch, finally being alone, turns on his phone to see that he has 47 missed calls and is getting another call, all from an unknown number. 
And as soon as he looks down at that with a little bit of a puzzled look, he looks up and the boat has been blown up. So someone tipped them off. They knew somehow. Maybe the phone was bugged. Uh, spoiler, we really don't find out this issue. But you can kind of do some detective work and find out perhaps they have it bugged or perhaps Antonio's a little bit shadier than he even appeared for a second time. We then cut to the police interrogation where Mitch is wanted as a suspect for the bomb. Though he is soon let out by the two detectives, Noemi Taylor and Mick Conway, they're still suspicious that he knows something. The detectives themselves, I feel, are written a bit too much like a caricature. Uh, lion's share of the cursing does belong to them, and I don't think that their characters are really established well beyond just being comical and a little bit caricature-ish. They don't have a lot of depth, but we really only see them in this one page, so I don't know if I could fairly comment on that. Perhaps we'll see them in the future. I imagine we will. The other thing that we do get from them is that we get a hint about how well-known Mitch is within at least that community. They know of his restaurants, and they know that he makes good chicken. At the beginning, we kind of know that he runs a restaurant, but we don't really know what their status is as far as good or not. Again, we get this later on when we find out that Mitch actually is a pretty renowned cook who's owned a few restaurants. But up until now, we really don't get a hint of that. So that is something else that the detectives do. After this, we fast forward to Mitch leaving and crying on his way to apparently the East Hollywood location for Mitch's Hot Chicken and just kind of lays in the back of a chicken truck. I thought he went home originally, but then upon closer inspection, he just kind of lays in the back of one of the chicken trucks near the restaurant. And in the back of that truck, he gets a call from Antonio saying that he's sorry about his family and that he has to go to a locker in the gym to get something for him. If he gets this package, he doesn't say what it is, from the locker, everything will be better. He'll get them somewhere safe. He promises all these things if he just does this one thing for him, to which Mitch is justifiably skeptical. And Antonio punctuates this and rebutes his protests by saying, quote, Mitch, what life do you have left? Justifiably, that kind of pisses him off. And we'll see that in a little bit. But yeah, I'm not really liking Antonio. And that's kind of the point, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I know I keep alluding to this postscript, this two-page write-up at the end of the comic book, but it's interesting to look back at some of this with some of that in mind, and we'll talk about that later. We do follow this up by Mitch driving. I originally thought it was going to be to the locker, but it's actually to visit his mom in prison. We do also get one of my other favorite panels on this page, or I guess it's a full-page illustration, of Mitch driving with fire coming out of his head, forming various points throughout his life, his children's birth, opening up his restaurant with Mitch and Danielle by his side, and in the middle, the boat explosion. He curses out Antonio various times. And although this page is saturated with a lot of those F-bombs that I talked about earlier, I think it works in this sense. It shows how frustrated Mitch is, and pretty justifiably. So, again, we have that big number of curses in the beginning. I think sometimes they're earned and sometimes they're not. But when they're earned, they actually do work very well narratively. So again, we find out that he's going not to visit the locker in the gym but 
he's going to visit his mom in prison. So we cut from this to Mitch seeing his mom in the women's correctional facility. He says, and I quote, I really need some advice. My partner got us involved with the wrong people. He made a really bad deal that had consequences. His mother basically says to play hardball with them. He says that you have something that they want and you need to use that to your advantage. Mitch says that he has nothing left to lose after what happened with his family being blown up in the boat, to which his mother responds that because you have nothing left to lose, that makes you the most dangerous person possible. After a moment to think about that, Mitch alludes to his mother having killed someone, someone named Bubba, which his mother immediately shoots down, thinking that he's got a wire on him or something and is trying to get her to confess to the murder. She does say that he deserved it, this Bubba character, who I'm assuming we'll find out more about at some point. But at the end, she basically says that she did what she had to do and that he deserved it. After this, we see Mitch going to the gym that Antonio directed him to for the locker that will supposedly solve all their problems. Aside from, you know, the deaths and all that stuff. Anyway, Mitch muses to himself that he can't be seen, so he needs to try to sneak in there. So what does he do? He recreates the cover. Yeah, kind of. He wears the chicken mascot's head inside and is basically ignored by the employee in the front who's just kind of browsing his phone. It's played more for comedy and absurdity than anything else that Mitch is coming in in this giant chicken head. But it is a little bit of foreshadowing, I guess. So... It's fun, and it kind of recreates the cover. He doesn't put on the full chicken suit, just the head, but still. We also see a little bit more foreshadowing in the sense that there is a wet floor sign, and the only thing that the, it's not really a guard, the attendant at the front door of the gym mentions is to watch out because there is wet floor. Again, this will come into play in a little bit. Mitch arrives in the lockers, finds the locker that Antonio talked about, plugged in the code, which is Antonio's birthday, and finds a giant duffel bag of drugs. To quote Mitch's inner dialogue here, they were right, he effing stole it. And yes, there are seven F-bombs within two panels here, not even two pages, two panels, seven F-bombs dropped. But again, I think this page, these panels, earned those curses. He just found out that his partner not only was knowingly in cahoots with the Russian mob, but he knowingly stole drugs from them, and that's going to bring up strong emotions. So, earn these ones. As soon as Mitch sees the drugs, he realizes how much deeper into this whole situation that he is, and then he hears someone yelling for him to drop the bag. It's another Russian mobster who is seemingly, again, tipped off to Mitch's location. So someone is giving information on where Mitch is. We never find out, but someone is either tracking Mitch or is getting information on Mitch and his whereabouts. In an attempt to run away, Mitch slides on the wet floor that was alluded to earlier and collapses amongst the drugs, and the Russian mobster comes up ready to execute Mitch. While doing this, however, he himself falls on the floor and his gun discharges an shoots himself, so the Russian mobster shoots himself in the head, killing him in a moment. He falls, bleeding, Mitch laying down. At this point, actually, he got up, just looking at the situation and wondering what he'll do next. 
And that is the end of issue number one. The upcoming solicitation reads, Mitchell, our overmatched hero, must contend with the bloody aftermath of his first run-in with the Russian mob. As he deals with nosy detectives, his shady business partner, Antonio, and the stolen heroine. This comic book's second issue actually releases this week, like I mentioned about earlier. So that's an interesting preview. I am going to be picking up issue two, so we'll see how this goes on. I might revisit this series somewhere down the line. I do want to keep the series that I go through a little bit more diverse, so we'll see how soon it is until I revisit this. But it was a fun read overall. I will say they also show a preview for the next cover, which is equally striking. It shows a man who we can assume is Mitch, but again, Mitch only really wears the head of the chicken costume, and this person is fully decked out in the chicken costume, holding a gun, a duffel bag, and from the costume's tail, which is a devil's tail, a stream of blood is being trickled along the floor. Striking image. I dig it. Looking forward to it. Now, let's get into something that I was alluding to throughout the entire review. At the end, we get a little article called Mitch's Hot Chicken, Our Story. It's two pages. It's a fake article, or an in-universe article, written about Mitch's young career in the food industry, saying that he started young working at dive bars, hole-in-the-wall eateries, and eventually became a very skilled and very famous chef within this comics universe. Like I said before, I wish we'd gotten more about this in the comic itself, or at least I did when I first read it, but upon looking at it again for this review, I kind of like how we get this at the tail end, because now we have our own opinions on characters like Antonio, and we know what happened with his family, but now we find out stuff like him and Antonio have been friends for a long time and have founded the restaurant together and have worked in restaurants together before now. We find out that he met his wife through a bar where she was working at and he later worked at with her to bring that bar into a gastropub, which he brought a certain level of prominence to, which made it really well-to-do, I guess you could say. It made it really popular. So you kind of find out his relationship with this cast of characters that we've met throughout. And now we see all this fallout that has happened. But now we also get a lot of the information for how much they cared about each other at one point. So I like that. I like how it is written and I like the information that it gives. We also get a menu at the end of the comic book, which I think is pretty fun. I like seeing all the different dishes that are possible. I like seeing how they're all named after the characters, like Antonio, his children, etc. So that's kind of fun. Again, more world building is something that I like in general, so it's a nice little aside. This one is less critical information, of course, but very fun information. Overall, my thoughts on the comic book are largely positive, with a little bit of negative sprinkled in, but nothing that really deters me from recommending or especially liking the comic book overall. The profanity is a little bit over the top in some spots in my opinion, but if that's what you're looking for in a comic or if you don't mind it that much, then you could still be in the target demo for this comic. The art style is something that I'm a fan of overall. It took me a couple pages to fully get into it, but once I did, it flowed really well for me. Same thing with the lettering actually. The story, though it was a tad on the typical trope side, is aware of some of those tropes that they use often and will lampshade it from time to time 
and with its sense of humor and style, overall, I was a fan. I know that the writing can be solid. The writer, Brian Bucciolato, worked on one of my favorite runs for comics, though I'm kind of biased, because he teamed with Francis Manipal to do a run on The Flash in DC Comics. That's interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how he shapes this story as it continues on. This actually also made me want to seek out the other artists who contributed to the comic book and their works. So that's cool. All right. So once again, this comic book is brought to us by Aftershock Comics. If you're interested after hearing this review and want to continue following this comic, visit your local comic book store and ask about it. Support your local comic book store as much as you can. I guarantee you that you'll meet some lovely people there. All right, and that'll do it for this episode of Comic Stands. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this newer, more revamped, and fleshed-out format. I, uh, I also had a new intro song, and a soon a new outro song, which I've been dabbling a little bit with. I might alter it a little bit from now on as well, but, you know, I'm growing a little bit more, so we'll see how that works out. And I'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. <laughs>